And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is the last message in our series, Letters to the Exiles. We've been going through 1 and 2 Peter. And the reason that we spent so much time going through these books over the summer and now into the fall is when I was reading these in January, just as a part of my normal Bible reading routine, uh, as I read 1 and 2 Peter, it struck me in a new way than it ever had before. And um, I think a lot of that is because you can start to see a lot of similarities in the issues that the early church is facing in modern-day Turkey and what it is that we are now starting to creep into as the American or as the Western church. Uh, we live in a place that is very different because we've, we're culturally Christian. Uh, that's, you know, if you're American, everybody else in the world views us as a Christian nation and, you know, like 80-some percent of Americans identify themselves as Christian. So Christianity has crept into the culture in the way that we operate. And we're now starting to see the death of cultural Christianity in our nation. And it's happened all over Europe and we're, you know, we're a little bit slow, but that's kind of the direction that we're heading. And a lot of people are lamenting the death of cultural Christianity, but I think it's, it's something that's good. And it's something that's bad at the same time. You see, really what cultural Christianity is, is it's a dead religion. What it is, is it's taking some of the ethic, uh, some of the rules of Christianity, it's removing the relationship and the love of God that leads you to follow this ethic now, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that enables you to live in this life, and trying to force it through just uh, customs, through law, through expectations. And that really becomes like a vaccine. If you guys understand vaccines, you take a dead form of a virus and you put that in someone and it creates antibodies. So that way when the live virus comes to them, there's already antibodies built up into them so they can fight it off. So what happens when we inject a dead religion into someone? It doesn't have the power to change them and it begins to build antibodies inside of them so that then when they have an encounter with the real God, that would come to them in love and his grace and his mercy, there's antibodies that have been built up inside of them so that they reject the real thing because they've had a bad experience with it. I'm glad that's passing away because Jesus said this, those who love me keep my commands. He doesn't say that we have to force ourselves to keep these commands. There are times when you do have to struggle, you're fighting with temptation, and it can be hard to keep the words of Jesus. But the motivation isn't, okay, I have to do this because it's what's expected of me. The motivation is because I love Jesus so much, now I want to live a life that's pleasing to him. Because I have tasted and I have seen God's goodness, because he is active and alive inside of me, now I want to follow the commands that he has given me because I believe that these things lead me into life and keep me away from destruction. Yeah. That's what the live version of Christianity does. And that's not what cultural Christianity does to anybody. It's trying to get them to keep the ethic and to keep the law without the love of God inside of their hearts. So it's good that that thing is passing away. And really, this is what's happened. Now they'll go into a phase over time. I mean, who knows? Times can change so quickly. But people are scared that persecution is going to come to the American church. And that may be at some point, soon, later. I mean, who knows? That could be, and who knows when it will happen. But that's not something that should ever stir up fear inside of our hearts. Because it's at the times that the church is being persecuted the greatest. It's the times when we stand out as countercultural the most. It's the times when we are showing our love for those who are hating us and persecuting us and would take our own lives from us that the church is the purest. And it's at that time that the church expands at the greatest pace. That's what's happening to the church here. 
They're being persecuted. They are losing their jobs. They're losing their homes. They're being driven out from society. They're laying down their own lives. And that's not something that impedes the gospel from spreading. It's something that's like throwing fuel on the fire. And it just causes this passion for God to swell inside of our hearts. Where we really say, I have decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back for me. But when you take away the hardships in life, oftentimes what happens is you become lazy, you become apathetic. You lose that passion and that fire inside of your heart. So when just a little bit of cultural resistance comes to you, you walk away. Because you haven't been strengthened. You haven't been tested. And now you're not ready to stand against any sort of pressure or persecution. And one of the greatest examples we can see of this in modern times is in China. There's the state-sanctioned church that's there where they can't teach on the resurrection of Jesus. They have to you know, give homage to the government and all these other things. The government controls what they can teach on. And then there's the underground church that says that we will never bow our knee to the government, that we're going to continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter what the cost is to us. The government has done everything that they can to stomp that out. But the latest figures are they think there are about 100 million evangelical Christians in the underground church in China. When they tried to stomp it out, it spread like wildfire. I was talking to someone who went to Bible school over in China as a part of the underground church, and we were talking, hey, you know, like, what classes did you have? How high up in theology did you go? Like, well, we kind of worked more on stuff like dislocating our wrists so we can get out of handcuffs, and we learned how to jump out of two-story buildings and roll, and I'm like, really? <laughs> like, we just studied theology and Christology and things like that. But they were learning how it is that you can escape and to run and, and to be ready to lay your life down for the cause of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that's ever what's going to happen in the United States of America. I hope that doesn't. But this is what we need to understand, is that we're not fearful about whatever it is that, it, whatever it is that may come our way. Because Jesus is the one who's ultimately in control. And the kingdom of God is here, it is expanding, and there is nothing that can stop it. Amen. We know how the book ends. Amen. We don't know all the things going to happen between now and then, but we know how the story ends. Jesus is the reigning and ruling king. He does come. He puts away sin and death and sickness, and our natures are fully and completely restored, and peace and prosperity reign and rule over all the earth for all of time. Thank you, Lord. And that's something that I'm willing to suffer for. That's something that I'm willing to lay down my life and say that so other people can come into the love and the grace of the mercy of Jesus. I will do whatever it takes. And so Peter's been writing to the church and warning them about the suffering that they're going through, telling them how it is that you can stay strong in the midst of it. He's encouraging them in the things that they need to remember. And now as he ends the letter, he, he's wrapping it all up by saying, these are the things that you need to remember if you want to be able to get to the day where you've lived your life passionately on fire for Jesus, you have not given up ground, but you have stayed strong and you have that day where you stand before the Lord and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because that's what I'm living my life for. Because yes. there's no paycheck on earth that could be better than that. And there's no accolades from any person that will ever be better than hearing my Lord and Savior say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. So this is what Peter says. He ends up, this is the last two verses in the second letter. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18 says, You already know these things, dear friends, so be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of those wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. See, what he's saying is that the key to you living out this life is growth. You have to keep growing. 
My dad has a degree in forestry, and so as a kid, he'd always be taking me around and showing me different trees and explaining how I identify them by the bark and the leaves and like tasting wood and weird things like that. I didn't get into that as much, but uh, one of the things I remember him talking about was that I marvel at these oak trees. I love them because you look at, you see the size of them, you see the strength of them. There's something that was here long before me. They will be here long after me. But he was telling me that the oak tree, it just continues to grow. A lot of them will spend about 200 years growing. But then they get to a point of where they stop growing, and that's the beginning of their death. And it'll take them another 200 years to die a lot of times. But they grow, and the moment that they get to that place of where they stop growing, that's the beginning of the decline for them. And I don't want to get too morbid, but really that's the same for all of us. At the moment of conception, there was growth, rapid multiplication inside of us. It's amazing when you look at how uh, just wonderfully made every baby is and the development that they go through. And then you watch them be born, and it's a little miracle. And then they grow, and they learn how to talk and to move and to do things. And they just keep growing and eating and growing and eating. And that happens until you get to about the age of 20. And then once you hit 20, what happens is that brain that's been developing, that's been grasping things and learning so quickly actually begins to start deteriorating. It's not growing anymore at that point. Of course, it happens right when you're in the midst of college. So you make real good life decisions. And it's the same, even your lung capacity. At the age of 20, you begin to lose lung capacity. And then you start losing elasticity of your skin. Your hair starts falling out if you have male pattern baldness. Uh, you know, just like these things, you start declining. You've been growing, growing, growing. But once you stop growing, you begin the process of dying. And that's what happens to all of us. And it's the same even with relationships. For those of you that are married, you know that you met that person that just captured your heart, and the relationship grew and it grew. And then if you don't constantly keep growing it, it'll end up starting to move backwards. Nothing in life can just sustain. It can't stay at the same place ever. You're either growing or you're dying. It's one of those two things. And it's the same in our relationship with God, and it's the same in our faith, is we either are going to continue to grow in God, or we're going to continue to grow in, in knowing how he operates in our lives, and knowledge of his will, growing in our faith, and our love, and our passion for him, which sets us up to be strong, to be able to keep secure footing, or we will start falling away from him. And that will put us in a position of where persecution or pressure on us will cause us to slip. It will put us in the place of where the hardships of life or other cares and concerns, even false teachers, it sets us up so that we can be in the place where we're taken away by them and our faith can be shipwrecked and destroyed. And so Peter says, I can sum up everything in these two letters I've written to you. If you want to stand the test of time, if you want to take hold of the fullness of everything that God has for you and never to be led astray, you have to keep growing. It's that simple and it's that hard. And there are two areas that he says that we have to grow in. And the first one he says is you have to grow in the grace of Jesus. Now, grace is... Um, it can be sometimes hard to define. A lot of times you think of someone that has a lot of grace and you think of them as being gracious. But grace, uh, here in the biblical sense, what it's talking about is the gift of God. One of the many gifts that he can pour out on, on you. And it's something that's undeserved. It's something that's unmerited. It's completely free. And it says that these are the things that we need to grow in, is God's gifts to us. And the perfect example of that is salvation. There was nothing that you did to earn your salvation. 
There was nothing that you did that could ever make yourself worthy of God giving you right standing before him, of him removing the sin from you. It was something that because of his great love for you, because of what he did on the cross through Jesus, he now made this grace of salvation freely available to all of us. And all we had to do was put our faith in Jesus as the one who is our savior. It's a free gift to us. But the problem is that a lot of people don't have an understanding of grace from God like this. They don't view it as something that's just freely poured out on you. You think that you have to do something that will make God feel gracious towards you. I meet people all the time, and they feel like before they can uh, have this grace from God, that they somehow have to, to please him. They have to curry favor with God. They have to make themselves acceptable, make themselves worthy of receiving a gift from God. But here's the thing that you need to know, is that God doesn't grow in grace towards us. We grow in our ability to receive grace. God is just as gracious towards you now as he ever has been and as he ever will be. God's grace and the gifts that he wants to pour on you aren't based on what it is that you've done. You can earn God's favor when you live a life that's pleasing to him. You will have favor from him and that brings its own blessing and reward. But it doesn't matter if you're following God or if you're not. He still wants to pour out grace on your life. There are still gifts that he wants to deposit on you and there's nothing that you can do that will make him want to stop doing that and there's nothing that you can do that will make him want to do that more for you. See, we can't make God more gracious towards us. And so we need to stop from this mindset of saying, okay, I have to make myself right and presentable to God now so that I can receive this gift. We just have to accept it. We need to grow in our ability to receive these gifts from God. God's gifts a lot of times are like, if I were to write you a check for a million dollars, that check has the ability to change your life, to change the way that you live. But if you don't receive that check from me and then put it to use, it's completely useless to you. Even though it has the potential to do something great inside of your life, it never will have any effect on you if you don't receive it and then if you don't cash that check and put it to use. And the same is true with God's gifts for us. Everything from salvation to freedom, joy, peace, contentment, boldness, strength, wisdom, you name it, all of these things are gifts that God has made available to us that he wants to pour out on us. We just have to get to the point of where we're willing and able to receive these gifts from him. What we do a lot of times is you look at someone and you say, wow, God has just really poured out grace on that person. What is it that they did to get to that point? I wish God would do something like that inside of my life. But the only difference between them and us is that they've learned to look to God for these things. They've learned to open themselves up to receive them from God, which then allows their lives to be changed by him. And we receive when we are in need. I think this is really the key to the way that we receive, is when you find yourself in the place of need, you become much more receptive to what it is that God wants to do inside of your life. And when I was three years old, that was my first encounter with heartbreak. Heartbreak, something we've all gone through. I was three years old, I was climbing on a wood pile I wasn't supposed to climb on, and I dropped my favorite cup down between the stacks of wood. And you know how three-year-olds are. They love inanimate objects, like they are the most, more than your parents. And you're like, hey, I'm so glad we birthed you, we raised you, and you love this cup more than you love me. But I couldn't go to my parents and ask them to get the cup for me because then they know that I was, doing, I, wasn't, I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing. So I just had to look at this cup every day. I'd go back out there and I'd just stare at it and mourn the loss of this cup. 
But thank God he poured out grace on me. He's healed my heart. The scars are gone and I am, I've recovered from this. But then you get older and you start to encounter heartbreak in a whole new way. Now, I remember it was a couple years ago when the most painful thing I've gone through was the loss of my father-in-law and watching him go through his battle with cancer. I think nobody should have to go through that. And when, when you go through that heartbreak, you think, God, how could my heart ever be made whole again? How do you ever move on from this kind of pain inside of your life? The thing was, I didn't know how that could happen before because I didn't need that grace from God before. But once I came into this new place, I needed God's grace in a new way. And so I was open to receiving it from him. I was crushed, like, God, I need you to do something in my heart. It's broken. You said that you're the one who came to mend the broken heart. So Jesus, I need you to, to mend this. I need you to bring healing inside of me. And he did. In a way that I had never experienced before, God came and poured out this grace of healing in my broken heart on me. And then even looking at my mother-in-law, and, and that's a whole nother level of pain and heartbrokenness that she went through. You know, her partner of 40 years gone. And life is not the same. That They were one and now the other half's gone. How do you move on from that? How is it that you can ever be healed and whole again? How can your joy ever be restored to you when you go through something that heartbreaking? And I'm, I'm amazed when I look at her now and it still hurts. It always will hurt. But the way that God has moved inside of her life, he's restored joy. She laughs again. She has hope again. She has a new way of living her life with a new dependency upon God for everything that she does. And she admits, she says, it's only by the grace of God that I've been able to stand. It's only by God's grace in my life that I'm able to do these things. And here's the thing, is that you look at something like that and you say, how is it that I could ever survive through that? And you won't ever understand that until you get in the place of where you need it. Because when you come to that place where the need is great, that's when God greatly pours out that grace upon you because now you're more open to receive it from him. Yeah. And it's like that with everything. Even with going through my, in my surgery with my pancreas, it was like, God, I need faith. I don't want to be afraid because now I have more than ever before in my life the opportunity to be afraid. Now I need your strength. Now I need your boldness more than I have ever needed it before. And so in response to the need that I had inside of me, God poured out his grace. And he filled me with a boldness. And he filled me with faith. And I was able to walk through all of that without any fear. And even now knowing that, you know, having to get scans a couple times a year looking to see if the tumors come back. And I'm saying, you know, the probability, percentage chance of it coming back. It's like, I'm not scared of that. I don't have to live my life in fear. Even though all, so many other people that I meet in the support group I'm a part of for this, so many of them are just living in fear, and that's the natural human reaction. But God has come, and he's done something supernatural inside of me. He's poured out grace to take away fear and to fill me with boldness and to fill me with faith in a way that I never could have comprehended before I found myself in this situation. And this is what you need to know, is that the place that you're at right now, whatever that need is in your life, God wants to pour out his gift inside of you to meet that need. And it's not because of you deserving it. It's not because you have somehow made yourself acceptable to God or worthy of this gift. It's not based on your own strength. It's not based on your own wisdom. It's based on God's great love and great affection for you and his great power to come and to do all things inside of us. We need to grow in the grace of God. We need to grow in the ability to receive God's gifts for us. And then the second thing that we need to do is to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. 
See, growing in God's grace is linked to the knowledge of Jesus because you won't ever open yourself up to receive something from God that you don't know he wants to do inside of you. And this is why it's so important that we know more of Jesus because the more we know Jesus, the more we know his character, the more we know his nature, the more we can see what his mission was on earth and what it is that he wants to do inside of me. And that's why, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced as I went through uh, you know, my sickness, the reason I was able to go through it and receive such a strong grace from God was because I knew that in Scripture, knowing the heart and the character of God, that what he wants to do is not give me a spirit of fear and timidity, but to give me a sound mind and to give me boldness and power. Yeah. So I said, God, this is what it is that you said that you want to do inside of my life. I'm not matching up with that right now. That's not what I'm seeing happen inside of me. But because you said this is your will for my life, because you said this is what you're going to do, I'm going to open myself up to receive this from you. And so what we have to do is the way that we grow in the knowledge of Jesus is first of all by studying scripture. And he reveals himself to us in scripture. The Bible is the most amazing book I've ever read. It's the book that reads you. It's the book that when you, you read it, the Holy Spirit just opens up your mind to understand it. God reveals himself. He reveals his will for your life as you do it. And this is how much importance God himself puts on scripture. He said this in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, when he was first making a nation for himself. He's giving them instruction for the way they're to live and he's giving them scripture. He says this, And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road, and when you're going to bed and when you are getting up. What he's saying is that you need to really dig into Scripture. You need to know it. It needs to be a part of the way that your mind thinks through situations, the way that you process things. It's so important that we need to teach it to our children. We need to meditate on it. We need to talk about it when we're going places and when we're sitting down to eat. Because as you do that, you have more full knowledge of who it is that God is and what it is that he wants to do inside of you. Now, the biggest complaint I hear about Scripture is that people say it's confusing, it's hard to understand, and so I don't read. And you know what? God knows that. This is what it says in 2 Peter. Peter himself, remember, he's an apostle. He says this, And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. That is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of the scripture, and this will result in their destruction. See, God knows that scripture isn't always easy to understand. And he wrote it that way on purpose. Because there are things when I'm reading my Bible and I come across it and it makes me stop. And I'm like, what? What does this mean? Or how is it that this can be? And it's supposed to be that way. There are supposed to be places where you come to in Scripture and you're like, I don't understand this. What am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to apply this to my life? Is this even possible? Because this doesn't match up with the way that culturally I've been viewed to view uh, the world that's around me. And the thing is, when we come to those places, we have to wrestle with it. We have to engage with Scripture. And here's the most beautiful thing for me about Scripture is, uh, there I am by no means understand all of them. But every day as I continue to come to Scripture and I say, Holy Spirit, you are the one who inspired the writing of all of this. As I wrestle with these passages that are hard for me that I don't understand, would you unlock it for me? 
would you give me wisdom to understand this? You're the one that inspired it, so you're the one that can make it come to life and bring clarity into it for me. And a lot of those times, what happens is I've been struggling with the scripture for years and even my whole life. As I continue to come and say, God, would you reveal to me in this? As I engage in the process of wrestling through it, he brings me more understanding. And he changes my life. And the fact that I have to pause and I have to wrestle so mightily with some of the scriptures makes it so that I, I encounter God in an entirely new way. And then the second thing we have to do is we have to encounter him. Knowing about Jesus from reading scripture is a good thing, but if it is just a historical account of Jesus that we have, that will be powerless to change you. You need to actually now encounter the person that you're reading about in scripture. And that brings it to life. And these are the ways that we encounter God is first of all through prayer. When we pray, we're not just coming and giving our list, like our, our Christmas list that we wrote to Santa, to God. It's not just, hey God, these are the things that I need you to do. It's us coming before him and part of it is petitioning him for the things we need. He's very clear that we're supposed to do that. But another part of prayer that's so important and really the sweet part of prayer for me is when I'm quiet and I allow God to speak to me. And I allow him to bring peace into my heart about the thing I've been praying about. You know, it says in Scripture, and we bring things before God in prayer, it doesn't say we're always going to get the answer that we want or in the time that we want it, but this is the promise he does make, is that the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds. I encounter God when I pray, and he speaks to me. And then secondly is in worship. It says that God inhabits the praises of his people. When we gather together on Sunday mornings and we sing these songs, it's not just that we're singing songs because it's fun or the band's good or we're trying to kill a half hour. It's that as we're doing this, as we're putting our focus on God and we're declaring, God, you are so worthy. You are so beautiful. You are so good to me. You are, there's no one who is like you and you are worthy of my praise and adoration. It says that God comes and he inhabits those praises. There are times when I encounter God in worship where it just moves me to tears. It's like I'm not sad. I'm not even necessarily happy. It's just the presence of God becomes so strong that it just moves me in a way that nothing else does. And for me at home, even when I'm just sitting in the basement, you know, listening with headphones and singing along, as I just turn my affection towards God and I begin to give him the glory that he is so worthy of, he comes and he's there. And he's amongst us. We've had people that have given their hearts to Jesus in the middle of a worship set. No proclamation of the gospel. It says that God is there and they sense his presence and his goodness and his love and his affection so strongly that they say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you from this day forward because they encounter the presence of God. And then thirdly, we encounter him in church, in our corporate gatherings. And when I come together and I'm with all of you, when I'm with my church family, I encounter God in new ways. There's something about us corporately getting together and praying together, about us corporately coming together to hear from God and, and what his will is for us, what he wants to do in our lives. There's something about us corporately lifting our hands and praising God where there's this magnified presence and we encounter him in a real way that changes our lives forever. So we have to grow in the grace of God and the gifts that he's poured out for us and we have to grow in the knowledge of Jesus because without knowing who he is and what he wants to do, we will never be able to receive the gifts that he wants to pour out on us. 
And here's what God's grace can do for you. And this is why it's so important that we grow in God's grace. Peter himself, the author of this letter, he knew something about receiving God's grace, the gift of forgiveness inside of his own heart. And because he received this new understanding of forgiveness, it changed his life. As you guys remember, Peter's been with Jesus for three years. He's one of the disciples. He's there. He's one of the lead disciples. He's the first one when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the first one to recognize who Jesus is and what it is that God is up to. And when Jesus says that I'm going to my death now, Peter says, no, I'll never abandon you. I'll even go to the grave with you. But when Jesus was arrested, when he was put on trial, Peter ran away. He abandoned God. When Jesus went to his greatest hour of need, Peter was nowhere to be found. And it says that he's hanging out, and some people begin to recognize him while Jesus is going through the trial. And they're like, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And he's like, no, definitely not. I don't even know the man. And three times when they call him out and say, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? He lies through his teeth. He betrays that relationship. And he gets so mad, he even starts cursing people out. Real disciple behavior. And then he has to watch Jesus, the Christ, the one who had loved him so much, invested so much in him, the one who he said, I'll never abandon you, and yet denied three times, he has to watch him die on the cross. And he sees him buried in a grave. And he's living with this guilt of the last thing I ever did. The last memory that Jesus has of me is of me abandoning him. And me denying him. Imagine the weight of living with that. The guilt and the condemnation and the shame that you would feel. You thought that you were going to be one of the people that Jesus used to build his kingdom that God had called you to something special, to something unique, that he was going to use you in these incredible ways, and yet you denied the very one who loved you and came to save you. So when Jesus is raised from the dead, and then he comes and he appears to his disciples, what must have been going through Peter's mind? Is he going to call me out on this? Is he going to bring his wrath on me now? Is he going to punish me? Is he going to tell me that I've blown it? Is he going to remind me of this sin for now until eternity? Am I going to hell now? You know, what is it? What are the consequences for these sins that I've done? How has it destroyed my relationship with God? How has it destroyed the destiny and the calling that God put on my life? And so they're sitting there and they're having a meal and Jesus says this to Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? How do you answer that after what you've done? He says, yes, God, I do. I know it might not look like it based on what I've done with my life, but I love you. And Jesus could have said, then why would you have ever done this? If you say you love me, then how could you have denied me? But this is what Jesus does. He says, then feed my sheep. And to us, that might be confusing, like, what? Feed my sheep? Jesus had sheep? But this is what Jesus is saying, is that I called you to pastor my people. 
I called you to be the one who was the pastor of the souls of the early church. And now I'm restoring you to that. Because you might have denied me, you might have abandoned me, you might have sinned against me, but I forgive you of all of that. My love and my affection for you is so great that there's nothing that you can do that will disqualify you from my love. Not only do I forgive you, but I remove the memory of the sin itself from you. There's no reason for you to feel ashamed, there's no reason for you to feel condemned or to feel guilt because I've removed that all from you. And now I'm restoring you back to that which I have called you to. And so Peter received this gift from God, this grace, this more full understanding of forgiveness. And that's the revelation that we need to have too. Because so many of us go through life and we remember the sins of our life. We remember the times we've denied Jesus by the way that we've lived our life. And we think that now God is angry or that he's mad at us, that we can never have that close relationship with him again, that maybe we've blown it and we think that now the kingdom assignment that God gave us and called us to is something that we forfeited because of our sin. But what God is saying to you is that my forgiveness for you is so full, it's so complete, that there's nothing that you can't do that if you won't just come back to me and receive from me, that I won't completely heal your heart, forgive all of your sin, remove all of your guilt and all of your shame, and fully restore you back to that which I have called you for. We need to receive that grace from God. Or else we will live feeling guilt and shame, feel like we have the angry God in heaven who we've disappointed and who will never use us because of what we've done. You need God's grace in your life. In this area and in so many others. And that's why we have been called to grow in the grace of God. You guys stand with me this morning. So every, every week, we always want to come together and it's like, okay, God, now what do we do with this? Would you speak to my heart about this? And let's just create a moment here. Or we pray and ask, God, would you speak to me? I need to hear your voice. God, have I received your forgiveness? Have I received the fullness of your forgiveness in my life? Or have I been holding on to my sin? Or have I viewed you as the angry God who now has let me disqualify myself from my calling. If that's you this morning, would you be bold enough to just raise your hand before God and say, that is me, God. I need the grace of your forgiveness inside of my life. I want you to remove all the condemnation and the guilt and the shame. I want your fullness of forgiveness. I want restoration inside of my life. If that's you, just slip your hand up and say, God, that's me. I need your grace in my life. Awesome. Now let's just come before the Father and let's ask him. Let's prepare to receive from him. Father, thank you that it says that you're the one who set us free. God, thank you that it says that our sins aren't counted against us, but that you were the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that removed all of our sin. 
and that now we have a right standing before you. We stand as your son or we stand as your daughter, pure, spotless, and holy in your sight. Jesus, we pray that you would break the bondage of guilt over every person in this room with their hand lifted high. God, that they would sense your affirmation, that they would sense your approval and your love, that you would completely break the chain of guilt and condemnation and shame over them. And instead, they would just be swept over with waves of your grace and your mercy poured out in their life. God, we pray that you would speak to them again, pour vision into their hearts of the life that you have called them to, the kingdom assignment that you have put in them. God, show them the vision of where you're taking them and put faith inside of them to believe you for that. And God, for every one of us, for every grace that we need, whether it's we need joy restored, we need peace inside of our hearts, we need strength, we need wisdom, God, for all of the gifts that you came to give us, Jesus, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the need that we have and that you would build faith and expectation inside of us to receive freely these gifts from you. God, so that we can stand firm, so that we would never lose our footing. God, so that we could boldly proclaim your goodness and live as a kingdom culture here on this earth, shining your light brightly in the dark world that's around us. God, continue to shape us into the image of your son, Jesus, and build us into the church that you've called us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.